Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in our Bibles here this morning. I'd like to encourage you to be in prayer for one another as a church family uh, during these days that we're living through as citizens of these United States. I'd ask you to pray for me. I'll tell you I've been struggling a little bit to find hope um, for this country that I love and the future that is before us, not knowing exactly what it is. I love this country. I love the United States of America. And it seems like the liberty and freedom and justice for all is on the verge of being lost. I love this country. I love, I love it even though it's imperfect. And as a nation, we have a history that's both great and terrible. Um, there are many things, there are many people, uh, people of history we could look back to throughout America's history, and we would find ourselves in awe of them and the things that they accomplished, the things that they did, the sacrifices they made, the things they overcame, the character and the integrity that they had. At the same time, we could look back through our history of these United States, and we can find people that did things that were terrible. And it's not limited to, to the people. It, it, it goes beyond that. It has gone beyond that. And so I do still love this nation, even though the past is both great and terrible. Abraham Lincoln said this, if America should fall, it should be toppled by a destroyer named us. And we have decayed as a society. We have decayed morally. We have decayed socially. We have decayed culturally, and we will get what we deserve as a nation. Eleven years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence on the final day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 in September, I believe it was on the 17th of September, there was an elderly statesman who was there by the name of Benjamin Franklin, and 11 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin was an old man. He was very feeble. He was in a lot of pain. Um, historians record for us that he found it difficult to walk in the cobblestone streets, and at times um, some of his fellow statesmen actually had to carry him to get him where he needed to go. And during the Constitutional Convention there in 1787, Benjamin Franklin was tired, he'd been quiet, hadn't said very much at all during those days that those statesmen were meeting. And on the last day of that convention, several of the members of the convention approached Mr. Franklin and they asked him uh, what he thought about what they had accomplished, if they had met his expectations. And Mr. Franklin responded by saying that he'd been pondering the wooden carving on the chair of the speaker. The, uh, the speaker's chair, it was made out of wood and had a carving in it, and in that carving on that chair there was a sun. And Benjamin Franklin said, I've been pondering whether or not that is a rising sun or that is a setting sun, speaking of the future of these United States, and how he had wondered if all that they had been through over those 11 years plus, if it was going to be a, show, a short time for these United States, or if it would be something greater than that. You know, we look back and we know what we've, how we've benefited from what they did then, but they didn't know all that would be birthed out of what they had done and the sacrifices that they had made. 
And so he said, was it a rising sun or a setting sun? He said, considering what we have accomplished, gentlemen, I believe it is a rising sun. For 244 years, an imperfect people now have pursued a more perfect union. And I emphasize that an imperfect people have pursued a more perfect union. And I'll tell you, I'm sincerely concerned that our beloved country will not see its 300th birthday in 2076. Most of us won't be around for that. William will be, I think, 63 years old. But he would be around for that. For us, I think the idea, the idea that is America seems to be a setting sun right now. This weekend's been a little unique for me. You know, the 4th of July, a celebration of the, of the birth of a nation. Oftentimes, it's met with a lot of celebration, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of unity in a country. You know, the red, white, and blue. And yet, for some of us here, even this morning, this weekend has been a little bit different. And I think it's because of what Benjamin Franklin was pondering those years ago. What is the future? Do we have, will we still have the religious liberties that we have enjoyed? Will we still have the personal liberties that we've enjoyed? Will we still have the liberty to think for ourselves and to believe what we believe, whether it be true or not? Or will what we think be mandated and pushed upon us? Some years ago, Cindy and I were out in California. We went to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library there. And while we were there, we came across a copy of the Bible in the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, which belonged to President Reagan's mother. The president used that Bible when he took the oath of office at his first inauguration. And the Bible there in the, the library or that museum that's there, the Bible there is open to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the same passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And it was opened on the day of his first inauguration on January 20th, 1981. That Bible was open to that same passage that it's open to today as it lays there in that library, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. And that verse, verse 14, is underlined in Ronald Reagan's Bible, his mother's Bible. And then handwritten in the margin are these words, and I wrote them down while I was there. It wrote, in the margins it said he had written a most wonderful charge for the healing of the nation. So Ronald Reagan understood when he read this verse that if people would do, if we would implement what this verse, what God had been saying to a, an ancient king and King Solomon, at that time the king of the nation of Israel, if people would do what God was saying to do that they could be blessed. Let's look at the text. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse number verse number 12. I'll read down through verse number 15. We're just going to look at really one verse in detail this morning. In verse 12 the Bible says, "And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice." He's talking about uh, the temple there in Jerusalem, the temple that, that Solomon had built for God to dwell in. Verse number 13, he says, If I shut up heaven, God says, if I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, 
that would mean a drought, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence, disease among my people, he says in verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And look at verse 15, he says, Now mine eyes shall be opened, and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. Let's pray together, and we'll ponder an initiative that we can take. Because we might ask ourselves the question, maybe you find yourself recently, the past few weeks, asking yourself the question, what can be done? What can I do? What can we do? And I want to consider an initiative that we can take as American citizens and as Christians. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that it is true. I thank you for the examples that we find in your word of people like us in ages past who failed, struggled, were misunderstood, misunderstood others, made mistakes, and yet followed you. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for being merciful to people of the past and merciful to us in the present. I thank you for being gracious to us, and even when we fail you and we walk away and we follow other things and we love other things more than we love you, that you make a way of restoration. Father, I'm burdened for this nation that I love, concerned for my children. we've been given so much. I pray that you'd help us in how we think. May you lead us, may you guide us, and may we follow you. Lord, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background of what's happening here in 2 Chronicles. And I want to say right up front that 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is not talking about the United States of America. Okay, so we all know that. And it, 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 specifically, God is talking to a man by the name of King Solomon, who was king at that time over the nation of Israel. Solomon, Solomon had completed the construction of the house of God. If you were to go back in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, you'd find it there that he had completed the construction of the house of God. And then in chapter 5 and verse 14, we find that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought into the most holy place. And the Bible says in in chapter 5 of 2 Chronicles and verse 14 that the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. King Solomon then offered a prayer of dedication in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles. And it's a lengthy prayer. We'll not take time to go back and read it, but it would be worth your time to do so. In chapter 7, we're told of the sacrifices that were offered as Solomon, in verse 5, in chapter 7 here, dedicated. And then in verse 7, he hallowed specific parts of the temple. And the events, all of these events, concluded with a seven-day feast of celebration. We don't have one of those in America, do we? We have days, you know, we have the 4th of July, and, and we have Christmas, and things like that. But we don't have seven days. Can you imagine what that would be like? And uh, talk about a lot of food prep. <laughs> be a lot of work, wouldn't it? But the whole nation participated in this seven-day period, the seven-day feast of celebration in, in chapter 7. You read about it in verses 8 and 9. And then in verse 10, 
it, we're, the, the atmosphere is described for us. And the atmosphere within the nation of Israel was one of exhilaration. It was one of hope. One of hope for the future. One of joy that God was going to dwell with them there in Jerusalem within the temple. And then the people returned to their tents. And it says in verse 12, as we already read it, that the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. And why did he appear to Solomon? Why did God speak to Solomon? Solomon had built this temple, and God was going to dwell there. Now God comes to Solomon to talk to Solomon about a probability. <laughs> God already knew what was going to happen, but Solomon didn't, as you and I don't know. And God knew that the people of Israel, his chosen people, were actually going to forsake him. That they were actually going to forsake the one true God, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who is all-powerful, the one who knows all things, the one who is merciful, and his mercies endure to all generations, the one who is love, the one who is holy, the one who is just. They were going to forsake him for false gods and idols made-up things, vain imaginations, and God knew that. And God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, and he had told them, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and as you worship me, and as you obey me, and as you honor me, I will provide for you, and I will protect you, and I will care for you, and I will never break my covenant to you. But Israel broke their covenant with God repeatedly. Covenants are broken in our day, aren't they? It's not new. People break covenants. People break oaths, and the nation of Israel did that. They broke their covenant with God. And so God laid out a plan, and I would call it this, an initiative. I talked with you as a church family about this a couple of months ago in a brief video that we put out, and some of you saw that. We looked uh, a little bit at this first. I want to dig into it a little bit more this morning because God laid out an initiative, a four-step initiative for God's people to follow when God is judging a nation or when God is chastening a nation. And these truths, remember, they were given to King Solomon. They were given to the people of Israel. We are, I am not King Solomon. President Trump is not King Solomon. And we are not the nation of Israel. So know that up front. But they are a clear presentation of the steps that must be taken by God's people when a nation has forsaken God. So what can we do when our nation is going through a time of spiritual decline? And we have not just entered into decline. We have been declining spiritually for some time. But we are reaping now what we have sown for many, many years. And when a situation is desperate, and I believe the situation in these United States is desperate, I don't believe it's just going to go away. I do believe there's a plan behind it. When a situation is desperate, God's people need to be desperate for God. It has been said that he alone is our, has been our help in ages past, and he alone will be our help. He is our hope. For years to come. Now the word initiative, my dad used to use that term with me. Seth, take initiative. <laughs> really? Do I have to? As a kid. Not lately, hopefully. But when I was a kid, when I was a boy. Seth, take initiative. 
When you see something that needs to be done, don't just look at it. Take responsibility for it. See it, meet the need, fix it. You know, and as a boy, it's something that we've had to learn as children, and we're still learning, I suppose. Initiative means the readiness and the willingness to take steps of action when something desperately needs to be done. When something desperately needs to be done. The willingness and the readiness to do what needs to be done. We love to talk about our history in the United States. We love to talk about the initiative of the founding fathers. We love to talk about the initiative of generals and our, our military and, and people who led in ways that were right. We, even when the rest of the society opposed them. We love to talk about those kind of people. And I'm telling you, as Americans today, God chose for us to be born and to live at this day and this time in history. And you and I need to take some initiative. We cannot merely look back on all those, and we have different names for generations of the past. One that comes to my mind right now is the great generation. It's not enough just to look back upon those who have done well and say, great job, and we're just going to sit back and do nothing. We are going to need to take some initiative. And so what initiative can we take? And I'm, this is not a political speech. There's a lot that could be said, and there's a lot of opinions that we might have in this room about what should or what could be done. Frankly, I'll tell you this, none of us fully know what will need to be done or what we should do or necessarily how we should do it. And you and I need to be following the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our personal lives, and we will do and we will be what we need to be as we need to be, be it. Okay. But from this passage, there's initiative that you and I can take as Americans, as believers in this land. And I want to look at them, there are four of them. Number one, we need to take the initiative to humble ourselves. We need to take the initiative to humble ourselves. Look at verse number 14, the beginning part. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Now, later on in verse 15, he says that his eyes are open, and his ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. He's watching. He is keenly aware. The first initiative God tells his people to take when they've walked away from the Lord as a nation is that you need to humble yourself. We have a responsibility to humble ourselves. And by the way, how many of us here would say, you know what, Pastor, I just love humility. Now, we love humility when, we're, when we see it and we're faced with it by other people around us. But humility has another word that is keenly close to it or uniquely close to it, and that is the word humiliation. How many of us would say, I'd like to be humiliated, brought low? None of us like humiliation. And so I would say it to you this way. We can either be humiliated or we can humble ourselves. And there is a need that God lays out, and not for me only, but for all of us as God's people, that we have a responsibility to humble ourselves. And this is not a unique truth. This, we, this truth we find in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And everywhere we find humility in the life of an individual, we find that God blesses that person. 
doesn't mean that his life is necessarily easy. doesn't mean that he gets everything that he wants. doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing, but we, everywhere we see humility, genuine humility in the life of a, a man or a woman or a young person, we find that God blesses that person. A definition of humility that I like is Maybe the most visible sign of humility is a willingness to submit to God. We can talk about our fellow citizens. And right now, and I feel like it's lessening a little bit, but for a while there, and I think it's still there, I think the spirit within our country was toxic. It's a lot of critical, I mean, criticism of the past, criticism of the present, criticism of each other. Can't hardly speak without being critical. Our country would be much better off if there would just be a, a whole lot of humility. And I mean everybody. I don't expect an unsaved person to humble himself. I don't expect that. And I don't think God expects that. But for a child of God, for a, for a person who has the Holy Spirit living within them, for a person who has received everything by the hand of God, from our salvation, our eternal salvation, to our provisions on a daily basis, to the homes in which we live, to the nation that God has entrusted into our care, should there not be an air of humility amongst God's people, we who know the Lord, and who have benefited greatly at his hands. James 4 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6, the Bible says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And then he tells us, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And by the way, a humble person casts his care upon the Lord. A proud person does not. A proud person does not cast his care upon the Lord. A biblical definition of humility is a proper view of self based on a proper view of God. In Romans 12 and verse 3, the Bible says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. I want to talk about this a little bit, how we ought to view ourselves as in contrast to how we ought to view God. And I'm, we're talking about this under the, through the lens, looking at through the lens of humbling ourselves. A uh, correct view of self would be a lowly perspective. I'm not saying we walk around ashamed of ourselves, but a lowly perspective. Without him, I can do nothing. I recently told my wife as we were talking and shared this with a couple of other close friends of mine as well, and I'll share it with you, that I look around at how God has blessed me. He has given me everything I own. I consider the children that I have, my four children, who I love so very dearly, and the wife that God has blessed me with, God gave me this. I didn't go out and get it. I didn't go out and earn it. I didn't deserve it. I, didn't, I don't deserve the wife that I have. I don't deserve the four children that I have. I don't deserve to be able to pastor you all as a congregation. 
I don't deserve to be able to know the truth, let alone to study it and to preach it, to know it. All that I have has been given to me from God. And this is a correct view of self. In contrast, having a lowly perspective with self, we ought to have a lofty perspective when it comes to God, that he is great and that he is good and that he is holy and that he always does what is right. You see, there's a difference in perspective. He is always right. He is true, and I am not. A correct view of self would require surrender, that I, that I give up on insisting on my way, that it has to be done my way. And the correct view of God would be that I, it would require that I would acknowledge his sovereignty, that he has the right to do what he wants to do with what is his. Have you ever found yourself going through times in your life and God has allowed those things to happen? He has moved, he has, he has ordered your steps, and yet you find yourself on that path. Have you ever found yourself frustrated with the fact that God has allowed this to happen in your life? The job you, you work the job you don't work, <laughs> or the children you have, or your spouse, or your income, or your intelligence. You see, we could go, and a, 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 humble, a humble person has a correct view of God. He has the right to do with what is his. A correct view of self is that I am nothing, but that God is everything. A correct view of self is, is based upon insufficiency. I don't have what it takes in and of myself. I can't pull myself up by my, my, by my bootstraps. I need God. A correct view of self is that I am weak. And God went to great lengths with the Apostle Paul to help him understand that he was weak. But then God told him uh, that his strength, God's strength, was made perfect in Paul's weakness, in, his, in, in Paul's frailty, in his weakness, in his inability God's strength was made perfect. He, his ability is magnified. It is shown. It is made obvious. That's what God is doing in our lives and through us. A, a, a correct view of self would be that I need to be obedient. I need to cooperate with what God is doing. And that I need to yield myself to his control. Andrew Murray wrote this about humility. He said, welcome everything that helps you on Toward humility. Think about that. <laughs> Welcome everything that helps you on toward humility. Eh, I'll welcome some things. Readily welcome some things. I think this is helping me on toward humility. When someone compliments me on a sermon. Good job, Pastor. Thank you. I think that helped my humility. I like more of that. <laughs> Not so, right? Welcome everything that helps you on toward humility, he wrote. The first and chief mark of the relationship of man with God, the secret of his blessedness is the humility and nothingness that leaves God free to be all. So the first initiative that we can take is humble yourself. I remember my father's words. Seth, take initiative. Trinity Baptist Church. Well, what can we do? 
What are we supposed to do? There's got to be something we can do. And I'm telling you, start here. Take initiative. See the need and meet the need. And it starts with each one of us individually. Humble ourselves. Part of the reason that America is fracturing and fragmenting, splintering is probably the best word to describe it, is that everybody knows best. It's a whole lot of arrogance in our country today. And let the humility start with us. Number two, take initiative to pray biblically. Now look at it again. This, these are God's word, words to Solomon for the people of Israel if they ever found themselves outside of God's blessing. God says, this is what you need to do if this happens. Number one, you take initiative and you humble yourself. Number two, he says it in verse 14, pray, pray. How many of us have been praying for our country, seeking the Lord the way we should be? And that's personal, that's between you and the Lord. But we need to be. We need to be praying. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, listen to this. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, listen to this, without wrath and doubting. How many of you found yourselves, and don't, don't, don't move a muscle, how many of you found yourselves angry at your fellow Americans for things that you're seeing? Don't move. How many of you have found yourself doubting that God can work through this for his glory and for our good? And Paul tells Timothy, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And that's so important in this. Not so much the lifting up of a hand is not as important as the holiness of those hands. Lifting up holy hands without wrath, without wrath and doubting. A biblical definition of prayer is this, quote, connecting and communicating with God, which is a result of a desperate need for God himself. What do, what do we as Americans think that we need more? Do we, do, we need, do, we need, do we need God more or do we need America to be what she's been for the past 50 years. Which one do we need more? Do we need God more, or do we need America to be what we want her to be? Let's see. There is a little bit of, of what we're dealing with that is idolatry. Now, the, the Constitution puts upon us responsibility to be stewards of what we have been given. I hope you know that. We ought to know that. Part of the reason why we're where we are at is because of ignorance. But this is where it starts. Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek the Lord. He's going to get to that in a few moments. In Psalm 40 and verse 17, listen to how the psalmist prays. Listen to the perspective from which he comes to the Lord in prayer. He says, but I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinketh upon me, thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. And you hear it here, the psalmist is praying, desperately seeking the Lord. God, I need you to work. 
God, if you don't work, there's no help. There's no hope. If you don't work, there's a desperation to this. Similar prayer is found in Psalm 70 in verse 5. And then in Psalm 86 in verse 1, the psalmist prays again. He says, bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. No, there are different characteristics of prayer all throughout the word of God. And one of those prayers that I want to draw your attention to is found in Daniel chapter 9. Would you turn there with me to Daniel chapter 9? I'm drawing your attention to this one intentionally. There are many different prayers in the Bible of godly people or needy people crying out to the Lord. But in Daniel chapter 9, in verse number 3, in particular, I find, I find a man in Daniel. You don't find fault with Daniel. Many people in the Bible, Abraham, you find he does things that shouldn't be done. Jacob, he does things that shouldn't be done. David does things that he shouldn't do, right? Paul, um, Peter, you know, I mean, continually. And I, and I appreciate the honesty of, from the word of God about people who followed God because they were just human. And we can relate to them. And it helps give us hope, increase our faith that while we are unable, God is able. So I'm thankful for that. But when you come to Daniel, you don't find anything that Daniel does that you would say that's sinful. And yet in Daniel chapter 9, I find Daniel taking responsibility for the sin of a nation. Look at, look at Daniel chapter 9, and I'll begin reading in verse number 3. I'm going to read down through verse 10 to let you get to see it. In verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays and he says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned. Now, the Bible doesn't record any sin of Daniel. But he says he takes responsibility corporately, nationally. He says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near, and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face. That would describe us today in America. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. The Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. You can look back. Look back to chapter 9 in Daniel, verse number 3. They hadn't listened to the word of God. They hadn't yielded. They hadn't obeyed. They hadn't worshipped him. They hadn't loved him. And so characteristics of right kind of praying during a day in which we're living would be one of supplications. You see it in verse number 3 there. See it there? He says, And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplications. And fasting and sackcloth. What's he talking about? What do these things mean? Is, am I, as your pastor, saying you need to go find some sackcloth? Where would you even find that? Ashes. Get some ashes. No, that's not what I'm saying. These things 
are descriptive. They, they um, paint a picture for us of what kind of praying is necessary. Supplication has the idea of prayer that is sincere, genuine. Prayer that is earnest. With fasting. Fasting has the idea of that which, a prayer that, praying that is sacrificial. In other words, sacrificing the physical for the spiritual. Fasting, by the way, helps realign right priorities in our lives. When, you, when something is taken away that gives consolation and comfort and soothes, fasting actually helps bring us to the point of seeking the Lord more fervently. With sackcloth and ashes, it's talking about being sorrowful over sin, broken over sin. Now, and I'm, I'm going to say this before we move on, but Daniel here, you don't find anything in Daniel's life that you say is wrong. I, I, know, he, I know he wasn't a perfect man, I know, but the Bible doesn't highlight that in his life. Daniel seems to be a man who followed God and loved God and walked by faith with God in a pagan world. But here I find Daniel was broken over the sins of his people. In other words, as he's considering his people and how they have transgressed the covenant with God, and how they, and Daniel included, himself included, they all had walked away from God, and they had rebelled against God, and they were reaping what they had corporately earned. Daniel doesn't say, I'm praying for them who are so wicked, who are so misinformed, who are so wrong. He includes himself with them. Now what I just said is a little repulsive to some of us here. Because we look at our fellow Americans and we say in our minds, I'm not like them. And maybe we should say, we are one nation, not under God at this point. God, would you please be merciful to us, corporate, us. I mean, this is the prayer that I see in the life of Daniel. He's sorrowful over sin, and then it says there, with confession. You see it in verse number four, the beginning part. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. What are you confessing? Well, you read on, and he, he tells you what he's confessing. How they've, they've wronged God, and they've disobeyed God, and they've forsaken God. They've broken the covenant. God had kept his covenant. Israel had broken their part of the covenant. And that has the idea of, with confession, has the idea of to being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So we're on initiative number three. Initiative number one, humble ourselves. Initiative number two, pray. Initiative, initiative number three, worship God alone. Worship God alone. Look at verse number uh, 14, back in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Look back at verse 14. He says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and then he says, Seek my face. Seek my face. Now, this is not for... This is for God's people. This is for God's people. This is not so much for the world. But this is for God's people. To seek his face. 
Seeking his face has the idea of worship. And the biblical definition of worship is this, quote, the response of one who is overwhelmed with God and lives with the conscious awareness of his presence. Now we can worship God as we sing hymns, but we can worship God throughout the week as we live and make decisions consciously aware of God's presence. I'm not going to say that because God is with me. I'm not going to go there because God is with me. I'm not going to make that business decision because God is with me. And when that happens, we are actually worshiping God. See, worship isn't limited to this auditorium. Worship isn't limited to the hymnal or the songs off the screen. It's not limited. Worship is not limited to when we pray. In fact, I would dare, dare say it's possible to sing songs of uh, uh, that are spiritual. It is possible to read God's word. It's possible to pray and not be worshiping God. But when you and I live our lives with a conscious awareness that God is present, it is actually a form of worship to the Lord. In Psalm 29 and verse 2, and there are many verses that I could read, but I'll read just a few. In Psalm 29 and verse 2, the Bible says this, Give unto the Lord the glory, the worship, do the praise, the honor due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Did you hear that? Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 95 and verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. In Psalm 96 and verse 9, he says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Look over, if you would, to Psalm 86. Just quickly, if you would, Psalm 86. We'll come back to 2 Chronicles in a few moments. Psalm 86. I want to consider together a few elements of worship or from Psalm 86 in verse number 10. There are different elements to worship, and I want to consider them. Worship as that conscious awareness of his presence. But in Psalm 86 and verse 10, the Bible says this. He says, for thou art great, speaking about God, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Adoration is the word that comes to my mind when I read that verse in Psalm 86 and verse 10, where he says, thou art God alone. You ever say you adore someone? In other words, there's no one else like them in the world. You like, as Mr. Wirtz has pointed out to me, you may say you love pizza, but you adore this person. You see, there's a difference. Adoration, adoration for God, recognizing who God is. Thou art God alone. It focuses on the person of God. Then praise is a part of worship. You see it in verse 10 of Psalm 86. He says, thou art great. It focuses on what God is like. God, you are great. There is nobody like you. There is nothing like you. The other day, I heard a couple of guys pass each other, and one fellow must have been wearing something, University of Michigan. I heard them, one guy say, go blue. And the guy turned around, go blue, you know. And I have to say, part of me, and I do enjoy Michigan football, but part of me was like, wow, that's so off my radar right now. I'd much rather see these United States have an awakening 
I'd much rather see God's people seek God with all their hearts. I'd much rather see God give grace to this nation for another hundred years. Maybe a turning back to the Lord. And I'd, I don't care if I ever see another Michigan football game again in my life. The worship has adoration and praise for God, what he's like, and thanksgiving. He says there in verse 10, he doeth wondrous things. It recognizes what God is doing. What he's doing. Do we all understand that God is not, nothing in America is out of God's control right now. He is actually working. Do we understand that? He's working. He's allowing things. You see, we as God's people need to turn to him. We need to desperately turn to him. We, we, our, our society is marked by a casual coasting, just coasting along. Do what you can. Do what you can get away with. Do as little as you can for the Lord. Let it stop with us. Let, it, let, it, let us start by humbling ourselves and praying and, and worshiping God alone. And one last initiative at the end of verse number 14 in 2 Chronicles. You might want to flip back so you can see it. He says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And then he says this, and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. God says there are four things you can do. Humble yourself, pray, worship God alone, and turn from your sin. You can do that. And I can do that. Turn from their wicked ways. A biblical definition of repentance is when an individual becomes so sorry for his sin that he is willing to change. He becomes so sorry, so disgusted with his sin that he's willing to change. Repentance, changing of one's mind that leads in a changing to, a, to the result of a changing of behavior. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. In verse 9 of the same passage, a familiar verse says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you defending any sin in your life? I've been there. Let us stop defending it. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. We are not prospering as a nation. The salvation is not President Trump. The salvation is not the Democratic Party. The salvation of the United States is not the Republican Party. Do we understand this? Salvation is of the Lord. Abraham Lincoln spoke of repentance and taking responsibility in his Thanksgiving proclamation on October 3rd in 1863. 
It's lengthy. I'm going to read it. I'll try to read it with expression. These are his words. Powerful. Quote, It is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. We know that by his divine law, nations, like individuals, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. I'll pause just to say this. He says, don't you realize that the civil war is a result of our sin? And it's needful for us to go through it to be a better nation. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. That's powerful. I think what amazes me is this. That was around the time of the Civil War. Country broken, overrun with sin, fractured and splintered. But Abraham Lincoln, by the grace of God, was able to see those truths that come from Scripture. We need to see those truths today. There have been great generations of the past. There have been wonderful Americans, many of them godly, hearing, trusting the word of God, who have done, who have stood in times that were adverse. They did not operate in a bubble. They did not operate in a vacuum where they faced no opposition. They gave of their wealth. They gave of their lives. It cost them something. And we need his grace. We need God's grace. As Americans, we must understand well that God has been our help in ages past, and that he is our only hope for years to come. Psalm 
33 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Ronald Reagan would later say, if we ever forget that we are a nation gone under, or, or if we ever forget that we are a nation under God, we will be a nation gone under. You know, this prayer, what God, when he came to Solomon, he said, he could have said it this way, when you leave me, because he knew it was going to happen. The, this is the initiative that you need to take. And really what God was saying was, I will be gracious to you. I will give you what you don't deserve. You know, we need to give grace to the people around us during this time. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that he will hear from heaven, forgive sin, and he'll heal the land. And should God do this, it will only be by his grace. Can I ask you this? Do we deserve the land upon which we live? We sang that hymn earlier, Oh, Beautiful for Spacious Skies. Isn't it an amazing song? Have you ever traveled anywhere in America? Have you seen? We live in Michigan, the Great Lakes. I can remember traveling out west when I was about 16 years of age with my family, and we all came back. We came back through the Upper Peninsula, and we went and swam in Lake Superior. My dad said, okay, so out of all the states where we've been, which one is the greatest? Of course, as a true Michigander, you have to say Michigan, because that's what we do. But the truth was, we saw so many things. It is a rich land. Do we, I'm going to ask you again, do we deserve the land upon which we live? Do we deserve it? Yes or no? No, we don't deserve it. God has put us here by his grace. I do not deserve this land. We do not deserve this land. Who amongst us deserves this land? The freedom and liberty that we have enjoyed. How many of us deserve that freedom and liberty uh, that we have enjoyed? Who amongst us is without sin? And I suppose to a large degree I'm weary of the arrogance that is in our nation today, that plagues our nation today. I'm weary of the hatred amongst citizens of these United States. I'm weary of the ignorant criticism of our past from our lofty and narrow perspectives of our present. And just as we need God's grace, we must give grace to the people of the past. And we need to give grace to one another in the present. We need to give grace to one another in the present. Are any of us here perfect? No. How many of us would like to be held accountable for everything that we have ever done in our lives by one another? Wouldn't that be delightful? No. We have given one another grace in the past. Americans have given one another grace in the past. They didn't always agree. They didn't always agree. Just recently I was reading a little bit about Jefferson and Adams. They did so much together, and then they were fragmented apart to the point where they became arch enemies. And then they were restored in their friendship years later. We need to be aware of what has happened in the past, not forget the reality of humanity or who God is, and we need to humble ourselves as we've seen today, but we need to give grace. I want to close with an illustration of this. Robert Smalls is a man I had never heard of until this week. Robert Smalls was born into slavery in Beaumont or Beaufort, South Carolina, on April 5th. 
1839. When he was 12 years old, his slave owner, Mr. McKee, sent Robert into Charleston to hire himself out. And that was what they would do sometimes in those days. 12-year-old boy, owned by another man, going to Charleston, find yourself a job. When you do, you'll send your income back to me every week. Robert, as a 12-year-old boy, learned to navigate the waterways of Charleston, South Carolina, Charleston Harbor, as he worked a variety of jobs aboard boats. At the beginning of the Civil War, Smalls worked as a steersman aboard the CSS Planter, which was a boat chartered by the Confederate government. On May 12, 1862, Robert and several of the other slaves aboard that ship had helped load, I think, six cannons onto the ship for transportation. They intentionally took longer to do so, so they wouldn't leave harbor until the next morning. And that night, when the captain of that boat and the engineer and the first mate of that boat took leave to go ashore for the night, Robert Smalls, he would have been 23 years old at that point, he put on his straw hat, the captain's straw hat, and they launched out, he and the other slaves. They stopped at a nearby wharf and they picked up his family and some friends, some other slaves, and then they had to pass a couple of checkpoints where Confederates were guarding the harbor. And at the right times, he had to blow the whistle to give the signal that everything was all right with the boat, and they made it past the checkpoints. They made it out to the blockade, the Union blockade of ships. When they got to the Union blockade of ships, he raised the white flag of surrender, and he gave that ship and those cannons over to the Union. Abraham Lincoln rewarded him with a $1,500 reward, which was a lot of money in those days. Robert Smalls became the first black American to ever pilot a Navy warship, and he ended up fighting for the Union. Later, he became a congressman for the United States House of Representatives. It's interesting, what I really want to draw your attention to is that after the war, after the Civil War, Robert Smalls returned to Beaufort, South Carolina, where he'd been a slave. This would have not been a long time. He'd been gone. The war's over. He, refers, he returns to Beaufort, South Carolina, where he and his mother had been slaves. And he went back to the plantation where the McKees had owned him. The McKees were bankrupt, and Robert Small purchased the plantation where he had been once a slave with the money he had received from Abraham Lincoln and the U.S. government. Mrs. McKee at that time was very ill. Mentally, she was unstable. She was very ill. But in an act of compassion, amazing act of compassion, Robert Smalls chose to allow Mrs. McKee to live in her home in Beaufort, South Carolina. Words that come to my mind when I think about something like that is mercy, compassion, grace. Did she deserve to be allowed to still live in her home? I think of the word redemption. He actually purchased something that she could no longer afford and then allowed her to continue living there. 
When I think about Robert Smalls, and I think about the United States of America, this is the attitude, this is the grace, this is the compassion that needs to be evident all throughout our country. And if you're waiting for the world to lead the way in compassion and grace and mercy, you will never find it. If you and I, as God's people, have tasted of the amazing grace of God, we have experienced what it is to be redeemed. We have experienced what it is to have compassion shown to us. And I'm not saying to put your head in the sand and say everything is going to be okay. I will tell you point blank, you need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God and follow his leading and do what you can as citizens of these United States. You have a responsibility constitutionally to do so. But this is where it starts. Humility, prayer, worship, repentance by the grace of God and give grace to one another. Give grace to one another. You're having conversations, you're seeing conversations in social media that we none of us should have to see, <laughs> but we all get to. Give grace. Give grace. There's gonna need to be a lot of grace given in the days ahead. With that, I wanna close in prayer for our nation, we'll pray. Um, I hope this hasn't been a downer, but this weekend was not a weekend of celebration for me as much as it was a considering of what God has for these United States in the future. I don't know what he has. I don't know what he has, but I know he will do what is right, and I trust him. May we do, we, may we take the initiative that he has told us to take in days like today. Let's pray and then we'll stand and sing. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us. We desperately need you. We need you. Father, we don't know what to do in so many ways and to some degree we think there's nothing that we can do, but you've shown us from your word today that there is definitely something that we can do. Father, I thank you for a man like Robert Smalls. Really is unfathomable. Except, Lord, that I have experienced your grace to me. When I did not deserve it, you loved me anyway. When I did not deserve it, you suffered long with me anyway. When I disagreed with you and accused you and hated you and despised you, you loved me anyway. And to that degree, Lord, I can understand it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as Americans to love you more than we love our way of life. Help us as Americans, as Christian Americans, Lord, to love our fellow citizens, whether they respect us or love us or like us or not. Father, I pray that we be salt and light during this time we commit the future to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.